So this last week, I was uh, having a conversation with my oldest son, Jordan. He's in San Diego. And as we were talking, he uh, was telling me that he took all social media off of his phone. It was a waste of time. And it was surprising how quickly he could jump onto Instagram or Facebook or whatever, and then 15, 20 minutes would go by. He still has social media on his laptop. It's just that it takes a little longer to open up your laptop and log in and that kind of stuff. But it was just one of his ways to, to um, deal with that whole issue of how social media can overtake your life. And as we were talking, it was, it was interesting because we, we got reflecting back. You know, he was about in ninth grade when Facebook came out. Of course, back then, you could only get it on a computer. We didn't have phones that, with apps that you can get it on. And, and, you know, he didn't spend a lot of time on Facebook because we had time limits on the computer and things. But one of the things we talked about is just the change. And for our teenagers and kids today, they don't know life prior to apps and social media and phones and all that kind of stuff. And, and just... It's, it's just an a observation of what, how life has changed and how quickly changes come in our world today. In fact, it just seems like over the last hundred years, it's just that change is just on this exponential incline. It, you know, when you think about the fact that Facebook has probably been around about 15 years and our phones and apps and all that we can do and all that's happened in the last 10, 15 years with technology It's crazy to think what may be available for us in 10, 15 years from now. If you listen to Elon Musk at all, I mean, some of the things he thinks are going to be happening in the next 10, 20 years are just crazy. And that change has impacted church. It has impacted how we do church and how we live in this world. Back when I was a kid, are you ready, teenagers? You, have you ever heard your dad or your mom say that? Back when I was a kid, you know, 10 feet of snow, uphill both ways, all that kind of stuff. Um, church was an important part of the community. In fact, church was the hub of the community. And in my hometown, Wilmer, when I grow, grew up, um, Sunday and Wednesday nights were off limits, and we had a religious hour, a religion hour, during the week during school. You see, there's this little law that most of us don't know about, that if a parent wants religious education for their kid, the the school has to give them time for that, and you can't penalize the kid for that. So in Wilmer... When I was growing up and church was such a central part, uh, Wednesday mornings for high school students, school would start an hour late. All the classes were shortened, and so you would go to your church, and there would be youth religious education. On Wednesday, uh, that was on uh, yeah, Tuesday mornings. On Wednesday afternoons, for middle school students, especially if you had confirmation, uh, you'd go from school right to church, They would have confirmation, then they would have study time so that kids could study and then, you know, play time, and then they would do a dinner, and then they would have youth group that evening. All that to say that in the midst of our community, a whole bunch of years ago, church was an important part. 
Most of my friends either went to church or if they didn't go to church on a regular basis, they went to church some of the time or their parents grew up going to church. So they had some connection to church, meaning that if you asked them about who Jesus was, they could probably pretty much tell you. Or if you mentioned a story in the Bible, there's a good chance that they would have a pretty good idea of what that story was about. Today, church is no longer the hub of our community. And as I mentioned last week, Sunday and Wednesday nights are, are no longer off limits. Things are of all kinds of activities are, are happening all the time. Religious instruction within the public school is gone. Although that law may be still on the books, it's just that we don't do it anymore. And part of the thing in my hometown is eventually churches weren't taking the time to prepare and, and do stuff. So uh, Tuesday mornings in high school became a sleep-in an hour-longer morning. So when 90% of your, your students are staying home and sleeping an extra hour, eventually that gets, that gets changed. The other thing that is true about today is that mo- there's a whole segment of students that are three and four generations from any kind of connection to the church. They don't go to church. Their, their parents don't go to church. And there's a good chance that their grandparents don't, don't go to church. So when it comes to knowledge about things of the Bible, they have none. They, they could probably tell you who Jesus is, besides being the cuss word that their dad uses every once in a while. The, the story of uh, David and Goliath, they maybe get the idea that it's you know a boy being a giant, but all the, the whole in-depth pieces of the story of David and Goliath, they wouldn't have any understanding. The truth is, today, we live in a post-Christian world. I've said that here multiple times, and I'll probably say it multiple times as we move forward. And the reason why I think it's something that we need to remind ourselves is, is because in our society today, Christianity is no longer relevant to the world. At least that's what the world wants us to know because they, they think that we are reading some 2,000-year-old book with some crazy old teachings that really don't have any relevance to what we are dealing with today. When you say in a conversation, well, the Bible says, they go, so? Who cares? Who believes that book anyways? And as we have been in this conversation about the devil, the flesh, and the world, in this series, The Great Deception, and how that has impacts our life, we need to know we need to admit, we, we need to come to the understanding that we live in a post-Christian world. Because until we admit that, we won't, be able to, we won't be willing to make whatever changes that need to be made in order for us to have an impact on the society around us. People aren't going to come to the church for help. Now, if they need some financial help or some gas money or food money, yes, because they know the church is benevolent, that, that your church 
cares for poor people. They, they know that. So they'll come for that. But if their world is falling apart today, the world's first thought isn't, oh, I'm going to go to the church because they can help me there. Now, this, this isn't... Um, I mean, we can look back 50, 100 years ago and go, God, I wish it was like it was back then. This is not about getting all down. It's about recognizing where we are, again, so that we can make the adjustments to do what God has called us to do. The thing we need to remember is, though the message of the gospel never changes, the method in how we deliver, and the method on how the church impacts the world around us is always in move and in changing. So, this morning, we're going to continue looking at the world. Remember, we had the, the devil, the flesh, and the world. We're going to continue talking about the world, and today, um, my question for us, am I in or of the world. The world, according to Jesus, is under the rule of the devil, not God, even when our world was much more God-centered and God-focused and the church was much more in the center, in the hub, still the devil has authority and is ruling over this world. Our definition of the world uh, that we've come to in this series is when deceptive ideas from the devil feed into our disordered desires, our flesh, and then they become normalized in our society. That normalized behavior is the world. There are some other people who have given definitions of the world, and I want to have us look at a couple of those definitions. The first one is from my Greek lexicon. Greek lexicon is just basically like a Greek dictionary. Um, and remember, the Greek word is cosmos, where we get world. And so in my Greek lectionary, it says this, the system of practices and standards associated with secular society. And secular society being any society uh, that attempts to live life without God or has the perception of, that there is no God. In other words, a post-Christian society. There's a Hebrew, or there's a uh, Jewish rabbi, Abram Heschel, and he defines the world this way. When people believe that man reigns supreme with the forces of nature as his only possible adversaries, man is alone, free, and growing stronger, God is either non-existent or unconcerned. It is human initiative that makes history, and it is primarily by force that constellations change. Man can attain his own salvation. Did you see that? The definition of world is a place where man can achieve his own salvation. If there is a God, then God is really not concerned with his creation, um, we, we don't need God because man has everything that it needs. For Dallas Willard, the world is more than just a place where there is no God. The world is anti-God. 
And Willard says this, our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. This is his definition of the world. This, this fits right in what Jesus said. The world is ruled and under the authority of the devil. So in other words, it is opposed to God. So in the Bible, when we talk about the world, the world is that place that is not just anti-God, it is opposed to God. Jerry Breshers says this, this is his definition of the world. The world is Satan's domain where his authority and values reign, Though his deception makes that hard to realize, if you are of the world, then all seems right. Notice that he said the world is the devil's domain where his authority and his values reign. And not only that, because of the devil's deceptions, it makes us hard to realize that his authority and values are in play. Now, you and I may look at the world out there and go, yeah, I can see the devil at work. What do you mean is deceptions? That's easy to see. What is harder to see is when the devil's deception is coming in here, meaning in my family, in my church, in my friends, in my own life. You see, sometimes we think that Everything is all right, and yet we are being deceived in little ways to steer us off of God's intention. And that is one of the hardest things for us within the church, because sometimes we think we have it all together, and we have it together, but there are places, all of us, that are being deceived. John Mark Comer, the last definition, says this about the world. The world is a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebelling against God and the redefinition of good and evil. The twin sins for Comer here is based on the temptation in the garden where Adam and Eve were tempted and deceived to rebel against or be autonomous from God, to be away from God and saying, I have it all that I need, and to redefine good and evil. Did God really say? The main thing I want us to hear and I want us to know before we move on is this, that the world is under the rule of of the devil, and in the world, his values reign supreme. Whenever you see the world talked about in Scripture, that's what we have to have in mind. Now, how does the world impact me? The key point here is that the world does have an effect on my moral and spiritual reasoning, or lack thereof. It happens because behaviors, both good and bad, spread through networks of friends and family and acquaintances just like a virus. And we all know about viruses, right? Too soon? No. You see, the world impacts me 
because my behaviors are shaped by those around me. Who I hang out with on a regular basis is who I am going to become like, whether at work or at school or with family. In fact, sometimes we know and see that sometimes my behavior at home is different than my behavior at work because I'm influenced by the behavior around me. We call this herd mentality. And I have a little video to show you what herd mentality is all about. There it is. The Bible calls us sheep. And this is exactly why. This, this right here is a picture of herd mentality. We all hang out. One person jumps off the cliff, and we all go, oh, cool. Maybe I should jump off the cliff. Sociologists have studied human behavior, and, and they talk about human behaviors cluster together in both space and time. And they become like each other even without coercion or even without rationale, meaning sometimes we don't even think why. So in other words, you come around people, you're around people, you become like each other, and it's not somebody pointing a finger and saying, you will be like this. It's just you become like each other because... We were created to be in relationship. We were created to be in community. That's the way God created us. And we become like each other. And this is why the devil's deception is so amazing. Because he can get a group of us together and one says, Ah, this is not so bad. Oh, you're right, it's not so bad. Oh, it's not so bad. No, it's not so bad. And all of a sudden, whatever that behavior is becomes normalized in our society. This is why I keep saying and I I keep feeling like it is so important for us to be around people and listen to voices other than ones that are exactly like mine. Because I can be deceived. Yep, that's right. You know, I've been a Christian all my life. I'm a pastor. I went to seminary, all that kind of stuff. Yes, I can be deceived, just like anybody else. And so if I hang around people that talk like me, think like me, and the devil starts doing the herd mentality thing and begins deceiving us, now all of us start moving this way, off of God, and we all think it's really okay because we're doing it together. Now, when I bring voices that are different from mine, that challenge me, all of a sudden I, we start moving this way, and it's like, what, what? And it pulls back. 
An example of this, kind of a crude example on a physical level, is royal families from many years ago. They would only marry other royal people. And their DNA, the weakness of our DNA, got mixed. And all of a sudden there was deformities. Because they all had the same weakness in their DNA. So too with our behaviors and beliefs. We all have weaknesses, places where we've been deceived, in our behaviors and our beliefs, and we always listen, not always, but we have a tendency to listen to the same voices all the time. This is why the Holocaust happened. This is why the genocide in Rwanda happened. This is why slavery happened. This is why a bunch of people could round up Native Americans and put them onto reservations. Is because there was a group of people that began thinking a certain way, and that group was led down the road to all of a sudden they started doing atrocities towards other people. This is why a teenage girl, this was a girl in my youth group many, many years ago, when talking about weddings, she said, Well, my first wedding is going to be. She had two brothers. All three of them, different fathers. Her mom had been divorced a couple of times. Not sure if the man the, the mother was living with at that time was married, they were married or not. But that was her world. That's what she saw. Now, thankfully, good things can happen out of this herd mentality, too. Meaning, if you hang around people who are really concerned about their physical health, you'll have a tendency to go down that road and be physically healthy. If you hang around people who want to follow Jesus with all of their heart, you'll have a tendency to do that. If you hang around people that are generous and desire to become more generous, you will naturally become like that. Or who are intentionally engaging their neighbors and their co-workers in the gospel of Christ, if you're hanging around those kind of people, you will eventually become more like them. So this herd mentality, yes, there's a negative side to it, but there is definitely a positive side to it. The key thing we need to understand is that we live in a post-Christian world, and the world out there is anti-God, and what John says next in the passages that we're going to see is a reason why we have to pay attention to whether we are in the world or of the world. In the Gospel of John, we read this last week, John 17, this is Jesus' prayer. He says, I do not pray that you will take them out of the world. I pray that you will keep them safe from the evil one. They, are not, they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to it. Use the truth to make them holy. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world in the same way I have sent them into the world. This is where we get the phrase, uh, be in the world and not of the world, because Jesus' prayer is that don't take them out of the world, God, you, you sent me into the world, so I'm going to send them into the world, but um, protect them from the evil one, and 
you know, as you sent me into the world, I'm going I'm to send them into the world. So it's being in the world, but not of the world. In 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John writes this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Do not love the world. You see, this is kind of the difference between being in the world and of the world. The more I'm of the world, the more I'm loving the world. It's interesting here that when John says, do not love the world, the Greek word he's using there is agape, which is the kind of love that we associate with God, right? For God so loved, agapied the world, it speaks of a kind of a sacrificial, unconditional, giving your all for others type of love. And yet, here John says, do not love agape the world. In other words, do not agape the world, the world like God loves you or like you are to love God. Don't associate the two. The kind of love I have for God or the kind of love He has for me should not be associated with the kind of love I have for the world. And again, the world is cosmos. The world is a place where the evil one is ruling and has authority. It is impossible for you to agape the world and agape the Father. Verse 16, everything in the world comes not from the Father, but from the world. And again, the devil is the ruler of the world. For me to love the world means I love the values and the authority of the devil. I know that seems kind of harsh, but if the world is under the authority and the rulership of the devil, then to love the world means I love his authority and his values. John defines the world in three ways in these verses. He calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lust is a perverted kind of love. Agape love is God's love, but when I love the world, I pervert God's love. And it becomes lust. And where love is about giving and sacrifice and unconditional love, lust is about taking, about conditions. It's about turning love upside down on itself so it looks different. So rather than desiring the things of God, I begin to desire the things of the flesh. I begin to desire disordered desires. Lust of the flesh. Flesh, talking about really, is sexual temptation or sexual immorality. And it's not about 
um, sexuality being, being in a covenant relationship between a husband and wife. It's about taking and satisfying appetites. This lusting of the flesh also pertains to uh, things like uh, instant gratification and power and control and food, gluttony, and drink. It, it is a kind of appetite type thing. And so loving the world means I lust after these appetites. I do a perverted kind of love. Lusting after the eyes, lust of the eyes is really about greed. And, and again, it's about loving to get. It's disordered. It's desiring money and possessions more than the Father. Remember, the devil is the master deceiver, and he can turn our desires for good into greed. A desire for being the best and turning it to something of wanting more. It's also about jealousy and envy and discontentment. Lust after the eyes, lust of the eyes, is about always looking at somebody else or someplace else and never being content where God has you right here and right now. The pride of life is the boasting that I, I can do it all on my own. I got this. I, I don't need anybody else. I don't need God. Usually the pride of life comes in a stage of affluence. All we have to do is look at the Israelites the Israelites, God would bless them. They'd be in affluence. They would turn their back on God. I don't need you, God. And then everything would fall apart and they'd get on their knees and cry out to God again. God would rescue and the thing would go over and over. I would say that here in the United States of America, one of the things we wrestle with is this right here. We, we wrestle with the other things also, but the pride of life. We as a country go, we don't need God. Look at how smart we are. Look at how wealthy we are. Look at how much better we are than anybody else in the world. The pride of life. The interesting thing is that these three temptations have been something that has been going on since the beginning of time. In the garden with Adam and Eve, the lust of the flesh. Satan said, the tree, it's good for food, it's appetites. Lust of the eyes. It's pleasing to the eyes, the serpent said to Adam and Eve. And they had access to every fruit tree in the garden, every kind of food in the garden. And it's like, look at this. They were discontented. The pride of life, a, a desire to gain wisdom, to, do, to be like God. So we see it in the garden. We see it also in Jesus in the wilderness. The lust of the flesh turned these stones into bread, appetites. The lust of the eyes, bow down and all the kingdoms are yours. You can have it all. The pride of life. Throw yourself down from this temple and the angels will protect you and then you will have all kinds of glory. You will be the one. It's a temptation that we face today. We struggle with the lust of the flesh. We allow our appetites to go haywire, and we're always trying to satisfy them. The lust of the eyes, discontentment. We always want something else. We're, we're not contented where God has us right now. 
And there's many times, many times, that we live our life in a way that we go, I don't need God. Now, maybe we would never say that with our mouth, I don't need God, but it's all about our actions. It's all about how we are living our life. Many of us wait until our world is falling apart before we go to God. And that is the pride of life. So how do we be in the world and not of the world? First thing is, check your loves. Who are you loving? What are you loving? Are you loving the Father? This, this is Psalms 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Testing your loves or checking your loves is all about inviting the Spirit inside you to reveal the areas that you are being deceived. To reveal, hey, this is where the lust of the flesh, it's something that I'm, I need to get right with. So the first thing is, check your loves. Second thing is, learn from Jesus and his disciples. You want to know how to live in the world and not of the world? Jesus, perfect example, he was definitely in the world. In fact, the religious leaders called him out for you know, eating with the tax collectors and the sinners and all that kind of stuff. But he was not of the world. His life was totally different. Spiritual practices. It's about reading our Bible and prayer and silence and solitude. It's about uh, practicing generosity. It's, you see, we have all these temptations, and the greatest way to deal with these temptations is to make sure that you are taking time to be alone with God, and spiritual practices are about that. What if we started our day first thing in the morning, reading our Bible and praying, inviting the Holy Spirit into our life to reveal things in us? And then how do we change those things? How do we adjust those things? Mark Comer in his book, Living No Lies, talks about the spiritual practices are like spiritual warfare. They give us habits that keep our heart and our mind focused on Christ. Be in community. We are made for community. We need each other. I need you. If you see something that I'm going off path on, I need you to encourage me and to invite me into a journey that is not alone going off, off on a distant path. Same way, you need me. We need to be in a relationship. We can't do this Alone. We need to be in community. Last thing, give yourself and others grace. Because the reality is, um, we're all going to make mistakes. We are. We're all going to have times when we're deceived. We need grace. We need mercy. We need love extended towards each other. It's not about trying to fix somebody else. It's about trying to love somebody and encourage them along the path.
So John's challenge for us is not to love the world, but to love the Father. Because if we do love the world, the love of the Father isn't in us. So the daily thing for you and I is, how do I live my life in a way that I'm in the world and not of the world? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for um, yeah, giving us an example of love and grace and mercy. I pray that we would be a people here at Crossroads that is in the world and not of the world. That we would be a people that is so captivated by your love that it would just ooze out into the world around us. And I pray for the church, the big C church, the church around the world, that you would just pour out your spirit and as a church around the world, we would be in the world and not of the world. And that you would bring a revival. A revival where lives are being transformed. A revival where people are turning their lives over to you and choosing to live in a way that brings honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.